This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. This week marks the anniversary of a deadly heat wave in Chicago. In 1995, more than 700 people died over a period of five days. Most of the victims were older Chicagoans, people who were socially isolated, and low-income people who couldn't pay to keep cool. Let's listen to some clips from that time. More than 8,000 customers are suffering through the heat without fans and air conditioners. A lot of them, you can't get them to come out of the house. And it's too hot to be in there. And once you go to sleep and overheat, you know you ain't going to wake up. You're seeing people who have temperatures of 106. And unfortunately, you're looking at dead bodies. We've seen many days of over 90-degree weather in June. We had near-record hot days in May this year. And because of climate change, extreme heat will keep happening. So here to tell us more about the impact on marginalized communities is Gina Ramirez. She was 12 years old during the 1995 heat wave. Uh, Gina lives in southeast Chicago and is working to improve air quality in her community as Midwest Outreach Manager for Natural Resources Defense Council. Welcome to the show, Gina. Thank you so much for having me. Also with us is Rachel Licker. She is the Principal Climate Scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Hey, Rachel. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, too. Gina, can you take us back to July 1995? What was the heat wave life? What do you remember? Yeah, so in 1995, I was 12 years old, uh, living on the southeast side of Chicago. And it's a really low-income community of color. We did not have air conditioning that summer. Um, We couldn't afford to repair the electricity in our home. So um, every time we try to put an air conditioner in, a fuse would blow. So it was just a really kind of um, scary time. And it was really an aha moment for me because watching the news every day, seeing the the heat rise, the death toll rise, Mm -hmm. it really magnified how segregation, race, and income essentially determine who lived and died. And to realize that at such a young age um, kind of was Um, really impactful to the trajectory of my life and career. And it was just scary. We would uh, drive around at night in our air-conditioned car. We would go to suburb malls, um, and my dad would give us $10 a day. So we would go see movies because that's what we can afford. Um, All just trying to cope from from the heat, get away from the heat. Wow. Yeah, and there weren't cooling centers back then um, because as a result of, you know, over 700 folks dying, then um, cooling centers were were implemented in Chicago. But Uh this was before that era. Rachel, good time to bring you in here. Remind us what can happen with extreme heat and, and what are the symptoms? Yeah, so, you know, when extreme heat hits, there are a lot of different sectors or parts of our communities and people that are affected. So, for example, um, the elderly are at particular risk um, because their bodies aren't able to cool the same way that younger individuals are. Uh, And in addition, people who are on certain medications, uh, there are even commonly prescribed antidepressants, for example, that can affect the body's ability to cool itself efficiently. Children, uh, you know, individuals with disabilities, I could go on and on. There many, many different parts of our community that are at disproportionate risk. And what happens is, you know, we all know what it feels like to get hot. You get thirsty at first, uh, but it can progress pretty rapidly into the point where you start to develop headaches or you can develop, um, you know, heat cramps. You can get heat strokes. And ultimately, if your body is not able to sufficiently cool itself, um, people can die because of extreme heat exposure. Mm -hmm. Gina, you you mentioned a moment ago how 
that day back in 1995 really just uh, set things up for the uh, trajectory of your career. I know that last month you, you lost power during a really hot day. And again, that 1995 heat wave, it, it stayed with you. You wrote a blog post about this. Yeah, those childhood instincts kicked in. I'm a mother of an eight-year-old son, and he was very uncomfortable. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I I knew what to do because I had lived through that experience before. I took him for ice cream, tried to make, you know, lemonade out of lemons. But it just really, you know, experiencing the the power outage and not having power on this really hot day um, just really highlighted to me that here we are 30 years later almost, and the social infrastructure hasn't changed much in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing more of power outages. Um, you know, the, the heat occurrences are happening faster for longer periods of time yeah. earlier in the year. So this is just going to keep continuing happening. And so we need to to think of um, some real solutions so that these future generations of children aren't experiencing these heat waves. Um, yeah. That, at these disproportionate rates. And and Gina, driving around like you did back in 95, that doesn't feel like much of an option anymore, right? No, I mean, Chicago is, is very is a very different landscape. Um, you know, crime is at an all-time high. So um, living on the south side of Chicago, I, I didn't feel comfortable sitting on my porch like what I would do with my neighbors during 1995 um, at night. So, yeah, I mean, took the risk to, to take a drive with my son. Mm-hmm. But um, the methods that we used back then to alleviate um, heat waves um, just aren't really ideal solutions right now. And I bet and gas was a lot cheaper back it, then, too. Yeah, and, and, and it creates these conditions for social isolation, which is what um, you know resulted in so many deaths in 1995. You, you live on the southeast side, and you, you say that all the parks and beaches and, and places to find shade and cool off, uh, they're near industry, which is posing another health concern. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So we have some beautiful, you know, forest preserves and parks and Calumet Park Beach here on the southeast side, but everything is facing industry. So you turn to the left and you'll see BP Refinery or across the street from Washington High School and Rowan Park, there's industry and um, at the Forest Preserve at Eggers, you're right next to Indiana, and there's a Cargill facility, so it smells really terrible. It looks um, abysmal. And the southeast side has some of the worst air quality in the state, and extreme heat can exacerbate that. So yeah. um, that always comes into consideration on hot days because it also you, you can't open your window because it smells really terrible outside. Rachel, what leads to urban heat islands? Yeah, so... When you have an urban area with a lot of pavement and not a lot of trees, you know, that pavement can absorb heat. You don't have shade from the trees. We also have these things called urban canyons where the buildings and kind of the landscape of an urban environment can actually trap heat, not to mention all of the heat that's produced from the engines of cars and industry, you know, that are in cities. Um, And so basically what that all adds up to is that urban areas, uh, tend to be hotter than their suburban and rural uh, outlying areas. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, as part of our weekly sustainability segment, we're marking the anniversary of the deadly 1995 Chicago heat wave. We're talking about how or who the extreme heat affects today. Our guests are Gina Ramirez, who's a Midwest Outreach Manager with National Resources Defense Council, 
and Rachel Licker, who is a principal climate scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Rachel, sticking with you for for a little bit here, you've studied how this heat will impact folks who work outside. And Mm -hmm. you say that on dangerously hot days, people are, they're just having to choose their paycheck or their health. That's right. What is considered dangerously hot, first of all? Um, Well, it's funny. There's actually uh, no defined threshold of, you know, that the government uses, for example. Um, There's no temperature? There's no set number? Well, there's sort of, you know, different thresholds where it gets worse and worse. So we know that, for example, um, as temperatures go above even 80 degrees Fahrenheit, it can become unsafe for people to work outdoors uh, increasingly so. As they go above 90 degrees Fahrenheit, it becomes, you know, hotter and hotter, or uh, excuse me, more and more dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, there's actually no standard on the books to say, you know, this is when outdoor workers should stop working. And that's actually something we're advocating for is we know science says that when the heat index or the combination of heat and humidity feels like temperature goes above 90 degrees Fahrenheit, you know, that's when, you know, conditions can become unsafe for workers. Uh, The CDC says when temperatures climb above 100 degrees Fahrenheit, that's when employers should start implementing work breaks. But there's no law, there's no standard federally or in Illinois mandating that employers should do that. And that's why, you know, we see a lot of workers experiencing heat-related illnesses and injuries and even dying on the job in this day and age. Wow. Yeah, tell us more about that because you say it's it's unsafe. What are we mm-hmm. talking about exactly? Give us the exact risks to working in these conditions. Yeah, well, what we see, there's a lot of new research coming out that shows that uh, in addition to just the acute effects of extreme heat exposure that I talked about before, where you can get a headache, you can get heat cramps, heat stroke, or even die, there's even the effect of being exposed to heat uh, chronically, and that can lead to actually kidney disease. Um, so, again, effects from being exposed on a one-off situation, wow. but then there are also risks from being chronically exposed as well. How often do you anticipate these extremely hot days to occur moving forward? Yeah, so without action on climate change, an average year, Illinois could see 15 workdays in total become unsafe because of extreme heat in the coming decades. That's up from two days historically. Um, And that would translate into $1.9 billion of outdoor workers' earnings that could become at risk of being lost. Um, And put another way, that means that the average outdoor worker in Illinois could be at risk of losing $2,300 in earnings a year because of extreme heat. Yeah. I want to touch on something else you've you've looked into, Rachel. The economic impacts for people who work outside who might have to stop working outside. Mm What did you find there? Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know, the uh, impacts for outdoor workers, uh, we don't have anything on the books uh, necessarily to mandate that, you know, workers shouldn't have to work under certain extreme mm-hmm. heat conditions and their paycheck, paychecks would be protected. Um, and so that's why, you know, under those kinds of conditions, a worker could find themselves having to choose between being safe uh, or risk losing their paycheck. And so, yeah, in Illinois, again, uh, the average outdoor worker could risk losing $2,300 a year because of unsafe work conditions due to extreme heat by mid-century. And we're talking uh, Latino and Black people, right? They're the majority of outdoor workers. 
correct. Yep, we found that. And, you know, it's really something you can see when you look around who is at disproportionate risk, who's being disproportionately exposed. Uh, we know that outdoor workers disproportionately identify as Hispanic, Latino, Black, or African American. And that means that those kinds of economic impacts would fall disproportionately on their shoulders yeah. and exacerbate in, uh, existing inequities if we don't take action on this issue. Gina, what's your reaction to hearing all of this? Yeah, I mean, the disproportionate burden is really real, and it it terrifies me that folks have to consider their health um, and while trying to make a living that, you know, that they're putting themselves at risk. Well, you're working to improve air quality in your neighborhood. Talk about how that's connected. Yeah, so frontline communities are often overlooked in kind of talking about climate. Um, I, I think that we need to connect it more because... Um, extreme hit, heat hits frontline communities much harder. So, um, you know, we need to create some climate adapt- adaptation measures that center frontline communities who have, you know, the higher rates of asthma, who are living on top of neurotoxins in their soil, who are, you know, waking up and walking their dog and, and foul um, smelling odors. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you add extreme heat to that. You add extreme weather, um, these storms that create these power outages where you can't seek refuge or, or air conditioning. Um, you know, you live in a transportation desert. You can't hop on a bus to go to a cooling center mm-hmm. or to, go, you know, go to a mall that has air conditioning. Um, all of these things are interconnected. And so um, folks are just trying to pay their rent and, you know, keep keep the lights on for their children. And so um, a way to alleviate um, as climate change continues to worsen um, is to is to put forth some, some pollution measures in Chicago that are long overdue, mm-hmm. which is a cumulative burden ordinance. Um, you know, the south and west sides of Chicago are the most disproportionately impacted. You know, thousands of diesel trucks run through those neighborhoods day in and out, and that carbon pollution is poisoning children's lungs. And so we, we need um, to decarbonize our buildings. Also in Chicago is uh, something that we're working on. Um, you know, infrastructure is failing here. Our school on the southeast side of Chicago, the roof literally caved in wow. um, on, on the last day of class. And so um, our teachers there, George Washington High School, um, are trying to get a green new school. So, you know, so there's some really great efforts on the ground that are happening, and there there's a thirst for um, yeah. this new generation to um, tackle climate change head-on. Rachel, briefly, you know, talk about the, the sort of changes that need to be made here to make working outside safer, and also what you would like to see on a policy level. Yeah, so um, a lot of the measures that we know, you know, would protect outdoor workers are really about providing oftentimes basic humane conditions, um, access to cool drinking water, shade, and regular work breaks. Um, There are videos out there uh, where you can see the conditions that farm workers, for example, are subject to where, you know, they're seeking shade underneath the plants that they're growing. And that's just, you know, unbelievable in this day and age. So it's about really providing um, humane, ethical conditions for these workers so that they can stay safe on the job. Um, And in addition to um, those kinds of adaptation measures, um, and also I should actually add that, again, making sure that 
paychecks are protected so yeah. that workers aren't in that situation of taking a break, but it's unpaid. Um, I also wanted to mention you know, the importance of really taking action on climate change so we can limit how bad extreme heat can get. Right. Um, so one thing I wanted to you know, lift up that's really awesome that we're seeing in Illinois in September of 2021, Illinois enacted a nation-leading clean energy and climate bill called the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, or CEJA. Mm-hmm. And that means you know, there are going to be substantial increases in wind and solar power especially in low and moderate income communities that uh, would benefit the most from hosting solar to reduce their electricity bills. Um, and, you know, this is really an important measure, again, putting Illinois in a leadership role that's going to help to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and limit how bad extreme heat can get. Um, so, yeah, you know, we need to see other states taking these kinds yeah. of measures. Mm-hmm. That's Rachel Licker, Principal Climate Scientist with the Union of Concerned Scientists. Also with us was Gina Ramirez, Midwest Outreach Manager with NRDC. Thank you both. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.